Gear up as Cash Miller and a team of accomplished guests steer you on an enlightening voyage filled with valuable tips, fresh insights, and effective strategies. Welcome to Marketing Masters, the Agency Power Show. Hello, everyone. My name is Cash Miller. I'm the host of Marketing Masters, CEO of Titan Digital. Today, I've got with me Hillary Glazer, um, Ellie and JoJo Communications. We're going to be talking about buyer's journey and you know what, how people are really making their decisions as they go along it. You know, what is influencing their decisions? What can you do to influence your decisions? Hillary, it's great to have you on. Tell us a bit about yourself and your agency. Uh, thanks for having me. So um, Ellie and JoJo Communications was started in 2019. Um, we primarily work with smaller companies who really can't afford large ad agency uh, budgets and um, retainers. So we try to work on um, smaller pieces of business, trying to make digital marketing specifically more accessible to clients. And I do a lot of coaching with my clients. So I like to say that, you know, I'm like, and their cheerleader and their coach. And also I help them do their marketing because in some cases they really just want somebody to do it and then have a sounding board when they want to pivot in some place. Um, and in other cases, I have clients that are very active in doing their own marketing. So that's in a nutshell what we do, SEO, SEM, um, a lot of PPC, organic social, organic search, content, all that fun stuff. I got to ask you, you know, for our audience's sake, the Ellie and JoJo name, how did that come about? Um, so when I was, I worked in a, a large ad agency and I was laid off and um, my husband asked me probably the day after I was laid off, what are you going to do? Are you going to go find a new job? And I said, no, I'm going to take time to mourn and I have severance. So I'm going to take some time to think. And about three weeks later, I called my dad and said, Hey, uh, I just filed my LLC. I'm starting a company. And he said, really, what is it? And I said, it's a digital marketing company and I'm naming it Ellie and Jojo. And he said, hold on, I got to get your stepmom. She's going to cry. Um, so Ellie was my mom. My my mom um, passed away in 2014. Um, my stepdad called her Ellie. A lot of us called her Ellie. Mm. Um, my stepmom's name is Joanne, but we call her Jojo. And they were the Google before there was a Google. Um, it's mm. my favorite story to tell, but essentially back in the 70s and 80s, before there really was this thing called the internet, you needed to know the best um, dry cleaner, the best pizza place, the best deli, you spoke to women, women yeah. spoke to each other. You needed a handyman. I have somebody for you. And people would turn to my mom and my stepmom um, to get not just like the best recommendation, but then where is it? So a lot of times you would find women hanging out at um, whether it was a park or a swim club talking about their husband's businesses. Um, and they just became their own mavens, which is another great Yiddish word. Um, so I named my company after them. And then I have a learning area um, for clients who want to really learn more about digital marketing um, that is named after my other stepmom, uh, Linda, who is a self-made woman. But I couldn't call it learning with Linda because I'm pretty sure that's trademarked. So, <laughs> um, so we're, still, we're still workshopping that name, but she is instrumental in helping me pivot at every every step of my journey in owning a business. Um, she's been right there because she is she has been a business owner for many, many, many years as, a, as an immigrant to this country. She learned everything on her own. And um, so I was I was happy to be able to name something after the three women in my life who 
have really been instrumental in my growth into adulthood and beyond. Yeah, the uh, the people in our lives have a ton of influence. My own father, uh, he uh, taught me many business lessons because he was an entrepreneur and I've been one most of my life too. So it's, you know, it's interesting and I think it's great that you uh, honor them you know, by naming your own business after the people that, you know, most influenced yours. When my, my dad's father came to this country, I think with maybe five bucks in his hand and my grandmother in tow and my dad in tow, um, barely speaking English and started a plumbing company that my dad took over um, at some point in the 80s so my grandfather could retire. So I've grown up in a world where I watched people live the American dream. And to take part in that American dream is one of the greatest things I think you can do in this country. And while there's a lot of like blood, sweat and tears that go into it, it's so rewarding to know that at some point, if my kids who are still young and in school, if they ever wanted to take over, they could. Yeah. But, the, you know, my my youngest, who's only 10, has an interest in learning more about marketing now. Um, and he is an entrepreneur at heart every time. You know, he wants he wants to do a lemonade stand every single weekend. He wants to sell bracelets <laughs> and he gets so excited when he has this idea of like, okay, I want to make this. How do I sell it? And how do I get people mm. to buy it? Yeah. So it's fun being able to like mold his his mind in that way. Yeah. My father throughout his whole life before he passed away, um, I only remember him working and I only know of he worked two jobs in his entire life. Uh, one was for a budget rental car that he only worked for like three months. And the other was when he was like 18 years old, um, he worked for an upholstery business in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, redoing seat covers and stuff back in the, this is the sixties. And, uh, he eventually bought the company. Yeah. He, uh, he impressed, impressed the owner enough because the owner was good enough to give him a job and stuff. And then back when you made like a dollar, $2 an hour or whatever, he managed to save up $5,000 and the guy had wanted to put the company up for sale. And uh, he said, I'd like to buy it. And he's like, well, you don't have any money. He's like, well, no, I do. And he was willing to take it as a down payment, you know, and they were friends for decades, you know, and, and whatnot, you know, afterwards and such. So, you know, like I say, it's just, it's one of those things that kind of runs in the blood, you know, when you become an entrepreneur and such, and because you see the uh, other people around you, you know, your children see mm -hmm. what you're doing and, uh, you know, decide, hey, I might want to do that, you know, or something along those lines because they see your freedom in doing it. Not necessarily that they'll even take up the same industry or anything, but they, they see how you're able to kind of live your life and, you know, you're not always being told by others what to do, which can be a very attractive thing. You know, now you take on a lot of responsibility when you do it, but you know, it is a, a different world versus getting a corporate job or working in a factory or anything like that. And some people are not meant for, you know, for the entrepreneurial world, yeah. but having worked in corporate America and worked in e-commerce and I've worked in these fast paced industries, I love the fact that I can decide Actually, I'm not going to work today because I have too many things going on or um, my kids were home all summer and, you know, my friends were like, I can't believe you didn't send them to like to summer camp or something. I really enjoyed being able to take a day off pretty much every week and go do something with them yeah. and then watching them hang out with each other and really bond together and spend more time and, and grow that that brotherhood bond that they have. Mm -hmm. But I also like this idea of, um, so I'm a PTA president um, and in our, our district, our school district, I'm the council president also. 
And being able to work for myself gives me that ability to prioritize and say, sure, I'm going to go have coffee for three hours with our superintendent. It's never something I ever imagined would potentially happen in my life, but it happened last week and it was really awesome. And I liked, I like that I can have that flexibility. Um, So it's interesting to watch, you know, different people have different journeys and my husband has a very different um, journey. He likes working for a company. He does not like the instability that happens sometimes (laughs) when you own your own company. Um, But but everybody, you know, everybody's got to have their own thing. And those of us that are entrepreneurs and love to work for ourselves and build something, um, I think that should be celebrated. Yeah, me too. I, I just, you know, the one thing I can tell anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur is you better have a strong stomach <laughs> because, you know, you're responsible for every decision that's made ultimately, whether you actually make it within your organization or not. You know, even mm-hmm. if you have somebody else, it's still your responsibility. Yeah. If something, you know, if it goes wrong or or whatnot, yeah, you're going to be dealing with it. Correct. Yeah. So let's get into today's topic. You know, we're talking about the, the buyer's journey and such, you know, because when, you know, we do digital marketing, this, you know, and applies to traditional advertising and such too, because when people are, you know, deciding on what they're going to buy, um, depending on what they're doing, uh, you know, it's it can be a bit of a decision, you know, some things are going to be quick, you know, it's like, Hey, I need this. But like, um, you know, I was talking with somebody yesterday that, uh, you know, wanted insight on paid, uh, using paid ads and the, um, the product is it'd be like merchant center ads, but the product is, um, the, uh, simulators, you know, for race car driving, but these are not your $500 buy it on Amazon simula- simulators. These are $30,000, you know, rigs that are like, you know, it's going to be a bit of a decision-making process to spend that kind mm-hmm. of money on that kind of a product and such. So it's not something that, Hey, yeah, let's grab that. You know, so there is a journey that people are going to go through to finally either make a decision or decide not to, you know, but for a while they might be considering it and such. So, you know, let's start, you know, there of, you know, when we're talking audiences and how we segment them and things that, you know, how do we go about that? You know, because as marketers, like, you know, the business owner, if they were, you know, they say, hey, I want to sell this. I want to target, you know, these people. How do we help them decide the audience? of who you're going to go after, who is that target market? What does that look like in making that decision? Because if we don't go after the right people, it's not going to work no matter, you know, what kind of advertising we do. So one question I always ask pretty much every client I've ever had is who's your target market. And anytime, most of them will always say, well, everybody, not everybody wants what you sell. Not everybody wants to take part in the service that you provide. So dig deeper. Who is your target? And that's usually when we start to uncover the more of like the demographics of, well, I'm, I'm really targeting women ages, you know, 35 to 55 and, or men ages 25 to 40. Cool. Now let's take it a little bit deeper. What do you think they do? How do you think they do this? Why would they have an interest in what you sell? And we start really looking at what are the features that, you know, this hypothetical person, this persona would have. And building out that persona can be very powerful because it actually gives you a visual of who's your target. What are the things that they really love? What are the things that they really hate? 
Um, what are their triggers? What are the things that they really like? This is a no-go for them. What are the platforms that they're most likely to be on? And it really starts with that conversation with your client about, well, who is that target? Tell me more about the person you want to attract. And if you already have a business, who are the people that are already attracted to what you sell? So whether you're a real estate agent, a, a therapist, um, or you sell something on e-commerce, not everybody is going to be your target. So you have to start narrowing it down, but then you have to go look at um, specific data that helps you understand like, okay, so let's say um, you have a therapy client. I have a lot of um, clients that are actually therapists right. and you have some subsections of their demographic that they're going after who want nothing to do with therapy. It does not matter what you do. They're not going to come see you. So you immediately have to take them out of the picture mm -hmm. and looking at some of the other research that comes in on um, who's more likely to go to therapy. How do you engage with them? That all has to be built into your persona so that you can apply that persona to whether it's the user journey or the buyer journey you still need to be able to apply that because you get some people, like if you're going after Gen Z, a lot of them don't like using Facebook. Yeah. Facebook is like for old people. Um, and on the flip side, I'm looking at, you know, Gen A, which is my kid's generation and their cousins and their older cousins are now starting to hang out on Facebook. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting dichotomy from a social standpoint. Um, but yesterday I received a question from a client, why aren't we on Instagram? And I said, actually, we have actual data that we've run on our own that basically states that the demographic you're looking for is on Instagram. They just don't care about what you sell or what you're doing on Instagram. Yeah. So it's not a plausible place for us to target people. Hmm. And the client said, oh, that's surprising because you would think that our demographic is on Instagram. I said, remember, I said they are on yeah. Instagram. They just cater. They don't right. care about what you're selling or whatever your service is. They don't care. They're less likely to convert on that platform. And all of that really has to be built into your persona. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, so you go into personas because it, it no, no matter what type of business you run, you know, we deal with a lot of home service types, you know, companies. And on the surface, you would say, well, everybody, we, we target everybody with a house. You know, we want the homeowner. Okay, well, you could start to break that down because you're going to have, if you want to really refine your audience, you know, you can do things, you know, like income levels and stuff, you know, the, you know, the cost of the house, what kind of markets are they in, you know, based on, you know, because I say you could say, well, my best, best profit margins are actually with these people, you know, so if I go and I'm servicing, you know, if, if it's pest control or landscape, like landscaping is an example. You know, somebody that owns a house that's, you know, under $150,000 basically wants, you know, a yard cut and that's about it. You know, some other minor things maybe, but there's not enough margin in it. So you start, you know, identifying, okay, so on the high, so you need stuff on the higher end. Okay, now let's look at who would actually call you. Yeah, like I say, because if it's, mm -hmm. you know, for one, if it's families, because most are, are going to be families, but... Who is the one making the decision that they want somebody to come out? Is the the man or the woman of the house? You know, also, is there an age group, you know, that you could end up fitting in because if older people might be a better target because they're less likely to want to do the yard work and stuff. They want to hire professionals and bring them out. You know, so there's a number of things, you know, that you could start looking at 
you know, regardless of the segment that you're actually trying to target, you know, it's like I said, like you say, you know, yes, your, your demographic is on Instagram, but they're not paying attention to what you do. That's not the, you know, the right venue for them, you know? So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a funny comedian who I heard once say, um, you know, my, my wife calls out these guys to, you know, redo something in our house and they always want to talk to the man of the house. And they don't realize that I have zero idea why they're here and they should go talk to my wife. And I found that more often than not in the service industries, um, especially like home service, it's typically it's typically the female in the house that's making the call, setting things up. That's part of our, I, I hate to call it a role in society because yeah. it sounds very stereotypical, but a lot of times that's the person that you're speaking to is the woman of the house. Yeah. Well, and if it's, and, and if, if the appointment is under the woman's name, don't ask where her husband is just yeah. speak directly to her. I've had that happen as a, as a homeowner and I've had somebody come to my house to, you know, to look at something. I think it was my roof and they said, Oh, well, is your husband home? Yeah. No, I'm your target audience. Not him. Right. My husband doesn't care. Yeah. I'm I'm the person that made the appointment, not him. So those are the things that you actually have to factor into the entire like not just your audience segmentation, mm-hmm. but your your journey and your messaging. And also like how you're teaching your people and your your company to speak to yeah. their their intended audiences. Like that persona, that um even that segmented audience, it's a great learning tool for when you have employees and you're like, hey. Sally Smith over here is who you're talking to. Do not ask where her husband is. Yeah. If she made the appointment, best practice is to just speak with the person that answers the door. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good example because like if you come to my house, my wife, you know, she like we have a regular pest control service. I've never talked to them. I didn't set them up. I didn't do the search for them or anything. You know, she has, you know, she knows if there's an, an issue around the house. I don't. You know, whereas when I will step in, for example, like we have some ceramic tile stuff, you know, some repairs that are needed because uh, the house is about a decade old now and stuff. Okay. So I went and found the handyman for that, but I did it only because I couldn't do the work myself. It got to the, a, mm-hmm. a level that I wasn't willing to do because I don't have the time nor the expertise in, in the case of, I don't have some of the equipment that I know that I need to be able to do it. Even if I knew how to do it, I don't have the equipment. So only because, so in, in that particular situation, it was an escalation. I know the work that they need to do, you know, and I, I can bet who is going to be able to do it because I would have done to a certain level myself, whereas my wife might not have, you know, done that. Right. Cause when I say certain things that I'll do and she won't, you know, so it's like, the pest control guy should target her and the handyman guy, you know, you know, I say for that type of work, target me, you know, mm-hmm. same house either way, you know, but depending on what you need, you know, she deals with the lawn care stuff and the, you know, some of those infestation. I don't know, you know, like she stays at home, she, you know, kids and does all those school things and, and whatnot. Um, so I say it is understanding who you're dealing with, even in what certain situations would you end up dealing with them? You know, who might be home, who might not be? Yeah. And it's like I say, plenty of, you know, women are working and whatnot. Obviously uh, it's, it's the same as men. Yeah. So you don't really say, okay, don't, don't default over and say, well, 
you know, it's uh, going to be a woman at home automatically because it's not necessarily the case. You know? mm-hmm. So you have to you have to consider that and you tailor your messaging, you know, based on who you think might be in a situation. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's any number of things that can come up. And it really depends. Like, that's the thing is, is when you're doing personas and stuff, you're really drilling down and you're you know, creating multiple that you might have different ads targeting people in different ways based on that. Absolutely. And even within those personas, you're still going to have different target audiences that you may actually target those ads with. So one persona, you may have three different variations of a single um, a single ad in order to apply the correct messaging to the right person. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, they could all be, you know, Sally Smith, but the way that they're going to interact with your ad might be different depending on their age, their income level, where they are in life. Those are all things that have to factor into kind of taking your persona and then segmenting them out so that you can reach the right person through the right ad. Okay. So, so now we, we figured out who we're targeting. Mm-hmm. Now, what do the stages actually look at, you know, look like as we're going through, because our messaging can change based on the stage that they're in. So this is where for me, that consumer journey gets a, like really, really fun. Um, I do things a little bit differently than my friends who build consumer journeys and customer journeys. My husband and I talk about this all the time because he works in the ad industry and I bounce a lot of ideas off of him. But he said to me one day, you build out your customer journeys very differently than we do. And I said, well, I look at everything from what's the pre-trigger? What is it that like could possibly be happening? Let's say it's um, home renovations. And somebody has a very old house, like some a house that's built in the 40s. Well, their trigger is that something broke. Let's say they had a, um, uh, a pipe burst in their home. Well, that's their trigger. But the pre-trigger is that, you know, they know their house is old. But until they have a trigger, they're not really doing anything unless you start to target people whose homes were built in the 1940s and 50s. If you can boost that awareness and kind of like bump it up before a trigger happens, you're already top of mind for them. So then something happens, you have this trigger and you launch into this information phase. They're like information seeking. They're trying to learn. It's a very like learning based phase of like, crap, what do I do? A pipe burst in my house. I have to call the insurance company. Um, I have to figure out with them, like, what do I do? I'm going to go to the internet. I'm going to search on Google about like, okay, what are things I need to tell my insurance company? What does that look like? As they're doing that, they're already starting to get recommendations for companies that can help with renovations of, let's say it was a pipe that burst in their house. You're gonna need somebody for um, mold remediation because where there's water, there's usually mold. Um, You're gonna need all of those things, but that's still in the information phase. When they get to consideration, And let's say you're a home renovation company and you deal with a lot of like water damage. They've already figured out that you exist. And if they haven't figured out that you exist, then you need to fix your awareness campaigns. You need to fix your social presence. You need to fix your organic search presence. Because if somebody is searching for water damage restoration, you should be popping up in some capacity, whether it's through local search, regular SEO, um, paid search, paid display. I mean, there's like a million different routes that you can go because 
they're in that consideration phase, they're vetting different companies now. And for somebody who's had a massive trigger like a pipe burst, the amount of time it's going to take them to find somebody and go through the consideration phase before they convert, like they've gone through awareness, now they're ready to, they're somewhere in that middle of consideration and, um, and the trigger or not the trigger, the um, conversion phase, you need to figure out how to get to them so that they do convert towards you in the quickest way possible. But while they're converting with you, they're probably converting with other people. So you can't stop in that conversion phase. A lot of times I see um, people do this whole, like, we're going to go from conversion to loyalty. But there's somewhere in between there before somebody becomes a loyalist or before they sign up for your newsletter, before they want coupons, they've already called you yeah. or they've already made some kind of contact. What is that middle road between like, you've already made contact with them. How do you get them as a client? And that's the difference between marketing and sales. And that's where marketing really needs to pull back because if they've called you and you haven't touched base with them. I have a client who had a form on his website and he said, no one's calling me. And I said, cause you have a hundred people that filled out the form. Have you gotten back to them? Well, no, I want them to call me. <laughs> well, then your conversion point isn't the form. And I took every form off his site and, you know, put the phone number on there. Yeah. And he said, well, people aren't calling. And I said, because they fill out the form, they want the form. Yeah. You know, if it's after hours, even if you say 24 seven, they still want to be able to fill out the form. Yeah. And um, his response back to them when they would fill out the form is give me a call when you get a chance. Jeez. No, you, you call them or you email back and forth yeah. with them. And he's like, I don't have time to do that. So there are hiccups along the journey that if a business owner isn't established in their own routine, that's going to cause somebody to go from conversion, they did the thing that you wanted and maybe it's, they didn't buy, but they opted into your service, but they're not going to become a loyalist if you don't get back to them. And it happens a lot in the homeowner industry, but when it comes to, let's say buying something, some people's buyer journeys are months long, years long. My husband and I were looking to buy a riding lawnmower and this has been an ongoing year long journey. And just as we were about to like pull the trigger, he looked at the prices, they, they skyrocketed. Oh yeah. So there's a, a lot of things within that journey that you also have to plan for like inflation. Um, as a, as a marketer, we look at, um, we, we look at how long it could potentially take somebody to go through those, you know, pre-trigger, trigger awareness, consideration and conversion phases. But once we back off and they've, converted in the way that we want them to sales either needs to take over or you need to have a crm in place if they've purchased something to keep them coming back for more that goes into that whole like loyalty phase so buying something tends to be a much quicker journey but it also depends on what somebody is looking for you know you could vet if you're looking for a therapist you could vet 20 therapists and have 20, 15 minute consultations. And as a marketer, I've done my due diligence. They've now scheduled their 15 minute consultation. But if none of those people have, um, have signed with you, then there's nothing that marketing can do to help that. Right. You know, they just weren't a good fit in some capacity. And I think as business owners, 
um, when they recognize that it's harder for them to understand, like in marketing, we take people to you. We get people to, to see you at every point in their journey, what you do once they've seen you and they want to either buy something or they, um, they want a service from you. That's, that's your job yeah. or your sales team. Yeah, you've got to have the systems in place to be able to convert that you know, and do the follow-up properly and such. And we are a very impatient society. So mm -hmm. you have to be able to do it in a timely manner. Otherwise, especially if they you know, assume that they're going to contact multiple companies or people and whatnot to do that. So if you are not ready um, to be able to contact them back and convert that, then you're going to lose them to somebody else. Because if you think you're going to wait a day or something, yeah things like that you can't do in your example of they want forms because I, you know, um, talk with that all the time, you know, with people because it's depending on what you need. Yeah, uh, if it's an emergency situation, you're not going to wait for a form to be responded to, you're going to make a phone call. But mm -hmm. if it's something where you are researching, you might submit the form because, you know, for one, it might be the only option you have. So you're going to, you know, you're going to wait to hear back. But it also might be the preferred method, depending on what you do, you know, what that person does, you know, what you're searching for. Say emergency situations tend to be phone phone calls, but less critical situations are often forms, depending on what you're doing, because you're trying to schedule on the, you know, you're expecting a callback or you're expecting a response, at least an email response you know, to mm -hmm. that. How much do um, testimonials uh, and yeah, you know, reviews and things play into the journey itself. So that's a tough one because if you are just starting out um, and you don't really have any testimonials, um, or even if you're a marketer like me who doesn't actively go after reviews and things from like from your clients, because uh, it's for me that feels super awkward. And if a client wanted to leave me a review on Google, they could you still need to show people in some capacity that you're really good and competent at your job. So if you're a therapist, you can't legally or ethically go after reviews. Um, so in that case, the buyer journey isn't really looking at, um, the buyer's not looking at whether you have reviews or testimonials. They're really looking at what are your credentials and how long have you been doing this? And can you treat this one thing? So you get, sometimes you get unicorns. Yeah. Um, a unicorn is like, holy cow, you do this, 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 and this, and you work with people like this. I don't need a testimonial. Um, in other cases, you know, you might have a business like ours where somebody will come to you, not even care about your testimonials, but will straight out ask you for a list of people References. who will go ahead and give a referral for a reference. Yeah. Um, but it depends if you're looking at products. 100% reviews are part of, of that entire process, because as they're going through that awareness and consideration phases, those two phases, they're really looking at how effective is your product. Um, and, and people are smart enough now, because we've had reviews for so long, people are smart enough now to recognize patterns in the reviews that they're reading, whether it's through a service or a product. Yeah. Um, and they're smart enough to understand when somebody is just like airing a grievance because they're just an angry person. Um, because you get all of those testimonials, you might get somebody for a handyman who's like, um, you know, this guy, he, um, he walked around my house with his shoes on and didn't use booties. 
okay, did you ask him to, or was that like, yeah. did he say, I'm sorry, I forgot? Like to me, that's no one cares about that. Yeah. But if you were, if you were a, um, a physician and somebody left a review and quite a lot of people leave a review that says, um, the front office staff was rude. The doctor was, um, 45 minutes behind and no one called to tell me, Hey, could you just come in a little bit later? The doctor's running 45 minutes behind. Mm -hmm. Well, those are things that would make somebody else go, you know what? I could use a different chiropractor. I could use a different physician, a different doctor. So there are ways where the, the reviews really play a role, yeah. but typically as business owners will ask for the review once somebody has purchased something or they're done with the service. But for somebody who's new, they're looking for those reviews somewhere in between that awareness and consideration phase. Um, I have watched ads in the awareness phase where people are giving five-star reviews for something, but I have no idea what the person is selling Yeah, <laughs> because all I'm seeing is a review and I'm like, that's the wrong, wrong place to put it. If I, if I'm interested in seeing a review, make it easy, put it on your product page, put it on your, um, your service page or have an entire page dedicated to your testimonials. If it's a service, um, or I can just go look at Google reviews if it's local yeah. or Yelp, if anyone still uses Yelp. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it has a place in it, but it really just depends on what you do, like what your industry is and whether you can really go after any reviews to really have people vet you as, as a good, mm -hmm. a, a good business person or a good business or a good product. Yeah. I like to tell people though, when it comes to reviews, people that are mad at you are way more likely to leave a review that of course is going to be negative than people that are happy with your service. So, you know, you're, you're always doing the asking, if you're asking for the review, you're doing it after the fact. And, you know, they keep in mind that they do matter. They can shut you know down the possibility of doing business. Um, the best example I can give is, uh, let's say I needed a windshield replaced and I'll call out safe, safe light auto glass because they do a lot of advertising. And so, mm -hmm. All the advertising, all it had top of, you know, had the all, plenty of name awareness, right? You know, and I figured of like, you know, there's other glass companies, but they're one of the largest, you know, that you're going to know the name of, you know, for windshield repair and stuff. And I needed the windshield. I wanted it done on a Saturday. The first thing I did, I, like, I didn't bother searching, you know, locally for companies. I was, I figured they were the one that would maybe be done, you know, able to do it on a Saturday. So I just went up, you know, looked up the local franchise and I saw the reviews and the reviews stopped me dead in my tracks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it was like a 2.7 and I took the time to read some of them and the complaints were typically, they couldn't get the, you know, the glass wasn't in stock, took weeks to get poor follow-up, you know, poor like everything, you know, and they had a hundred mm -hmm. reviews. It wasn't three or four, it was a significant number. And so Consequently, I ended up waiting till Monday and I called a different company that had solid reviews, you know, so like you can kill the, the journey, like all of the brand awareness and such, you know, they built it up, they'd done all that part right. And the reviews for the local franchise killed the journey. Yeah. Like and it's important. It's important to answer those reviews too. And they weren't. Um, I, and I have a client who's, who's a physician and at one point somebody left a negative review and it turns out it was for the practice next door. <laughs> yeah. So they answered and said, you know, um, you, you can't, 
you can't violate HIPAA laws. But they said, you know, we're, we're unsure of when you came in. Are you sure you're not talking about the practice next door? Please go ahead and give us a, a call or send us an email so that we can rectify the situation. Yeah. And the guy never answered. And, you know, when you respond in a totally unique manner that like really fits the situation and it's not just a canned response, um, people pay attention to that. So if you're, if you're like a, um, a construction company or a home renovation right. company and you consistently have the same negative review of um, called and set up a time to meet with them, they never showed up. And the response is never received a phone call from you. I have no idea who you are. And I think this review is fake. Yeah. If that is your canned response over right. and over and over again, then that's a pattern and people are going to see that. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, you're at the, you're at the end of the journey there because they're willing to contact you. They've made their decision, but you could still stop it. And yeah, if you see a, a canned response like that over and over again, yeah, people pick up those patterns. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's also the thing when, you know, when you have a number of negative reviews and the response is always, you know, please contact our office or whatever we'd like to write. You know, you don't see really an answer. It's always the same thing said over and over again. You know, that can be and an issue too. It's important to know the role that your website plays in your marketing overall, because for some companies, their website is just a place for people to go once they recognize, like they went to a networking event or, um, you know, their sales is really off the hook and they're fantastic at, at sales. And they've got that awareness part, but now people are coming to search for them. You got to make sure that your SEO is on point so that people can find you easily. But your website in some cases is just purely informational. And in other cases, it's a place to sell things. It's the central hub to your business. Um, I own like a teeny tiny offshoot of a baking company. And in the state of Michigan, um, as a we have a cottage law. If you make food out of your house, um, you are not allowed to sell products online. Hmm. So like you can have people order, but they can't pay online. It ha they have to pay you in person or through other means. It sounds kind of convoluted, but it's, it, it is what it is. So my website is really just a place that if somebody were to look for my little teeny tiny baking company, they could find it. But then there's links to go off to actually fill out the order form for whatever it is you want. Yeah. So it's a purely informational place, not transactional. Hmm. And it's important to recognize that role of, you know, what is it you want people to do on your site and then guide them in that capacity. Yeah. Um, a lot of food sites um, end up putting recipes on their sites and then wonder, well, gosh, why is nobody converting? Because you've given them a whole bunch of recipes and not really a reason to go out and buy the thing that you sell. Right. You know, yeah. and then you're up against like Whole Foods <laughs> and all recipes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So the, when it comes to the journey that you go on, know that there's a bunch of different points, you know, where let's say you can kind of pick up steam, but you can also stop them. Uh, and you have to consider it from start to finish, you know, not just because it's, you know, as marketers, we can drive leads, we can drive, you know, business to you potentially, but you have to convert it. If you can't convert it and you don't have the systems in place the you know, that will be the end of the journey, no matter what. Well, like if you're doing lead gen through um, through text ads on Google, through Google ads, you're doing pay-per-click campaigns and you're not doing the display side, but you're really just doing pure text ads where people can fill out their information. 
those are great. You've saved somebody an extra step of going to your website. But if you're only banking on them filling out that form within your Google ad and not expecting them to go to your website to learn more about you and fill out a form on your site, you're missing something in the journey. It's important to know within the journey where to plug in the right, you know, pull the right levers and like plug in the right tactics, knowing that even on your own site, you're going to have different areas of your site that hit different parts of the journey. Yeah. I was, uh, I guess the the last uh, thing I'll bring up websites themselves are, you know, they're part of that journey. And even if the journey starts with you going to a networking event, yeah, and you're introducing yourself to people, you're handing out business cards, eventually, maybe they're thinking of referring people over. So that's the journey that they're on. Those people that um, are told about you, but have not actually met you or anything like that, or even if they have at a networking event, they're still going to go online because that's going to continue their journey and they're going to check out who Mm -hmm. you are. And so that presence is going to matter. Yeah, They're not just going to, you know, hey, my friend said, you know, I should call you. So I did. Yeah, They're going to check you out further in this day and age. They'll still mention their friend. They'll still say, you know, so-and-so said I should call, but they've done their homework. And that's part of the journey that they're on. Yep. And having the right areas in place on your website for them to do that information gathering, to do their homework is only part of the battle. Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of times as a digital marketing company, well, I just want to hire you for SEO. Okay. What are your expectations of SEO? What are your expectations of organic search? Because there's also now different types of organic search. Mm -hmm. So what are you hoping will happen? And they're like, well, I want, I want more clients. I want more leads. Okay, but then we have to look at the rest of the consumer journey. And um, I had a client who uh, was a retirement investor, retirement advisor. And he said, you are the only marketer that's ever actually talked to me about the consumer journey and what I need to do to pull the levers. He's like, everybody else did more of like um, a dart, like a dartboard. Let's see what we can hit and see what sticks. And I said to him, but look at this, you have all of this marketing and you have stretched yourself so thin, but how many clients have you actually gotten from it? And he said, none. I said, right. So what are you doing that's working? And he said, well, I'm, I'm giving these like free seminars. Amazing. You need to be doing more of that. And we need to be marketing more towards yeah. those seminars. Yeah. Like I say, you can bring in people, you know, uh, sometimes the most, um, yeah, obvious things are not that obvious. You know, like I say, looking at what is working and what that, you know, that's the journey you have to put people on, you know, to get them to you versus, you know, just throwing things, that, you know, darts at the wall and stuff and see which, you know, which one actually, you know, hits a bullseye because uh, you just don't know. In this day and age with marketing, you have to get more inventive with your tactics often because so many things, you know, we have a, a tendency, especially with the internet, is, you know, I give, Cold email is an example as a, a way to start the buyer's journey. If you, I get a zillion cold emails now every day. There was a point where it was brand new and it could, you know, start me into looking into things and such. Now I get so many that I ignore them all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's people pile on, you know, so you have to be inventive and realize you can take them down a different journey and still get them where you want them to go. I have hundreds of unread emails and 98% of them are cold emails and it, and they don't stop. Like they just keep responding. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, please find another journey. 
Yeah. Like find another way to get You're on a journey. I'm not on that one with you. Right. Like find another way to get in touch with me because this isn't the flex. And at one point, somebody actually sent me a text message. They found my phone number on a social platform and sent me a text message to send me a cold text message on my personal phone. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, no, you can't do that, first of all. Second of all, um, you have a lot of chutzpah to send me a text yeah. message. I have no idea who you are. And they're like, sorry, I didn't mean to like upset you. And I said, but you violated my personal space. Yeah. If you had just sent me an email, I might've read it. Or if you sent me something on LinkedIn, I may have read it, mm-hmm. but you violated my personal space. And that's a place that I think marketers should not go. Yeah. I actually, we stay away from text messaging as an agency because, and I get the occasional one too, you know, that it'll be like a realtor or something. I'm like, no, you, that's my, it's my phone. I already get enough mm-hmm. spam calls. So for you to come through and hit me with the, you know, cause like we get so many, you know, calls that's, you know, there are different ways to start that journey. Those are some of the ones you don't do, you know, anymore. Like I say, I don't take any cold calls anymore, none, you know, so if I don't recognize the number, it's deleted. Yeah. You know, the only time you, you might slip through is cause I'm expecting another a call from somebody and I don't know what the number it is that they'll be calling me from. So I'll answer because I don't have a choice. <laughs> you know? So this has been a great conversation. Uh, okay. Well, this has been great. It's been great having you on Hillary. Uh, my name is Cash Miller. I'm the host of Marketing Masters, CEO of Titan Digital. We've been talking about buyer's journey, some of the things you should do, some of the things you should not do, and know that you can, at any point in that journey, it can be totally disrupted and you can lose a person. You know? So, you know, keep the steps in mind, keep the things in mind that you're doing, you know, because there is a right and a wrong way to go about it. And you've got to look at all aspects, you know, they get through the journey. What are they going to do? How are you going to handle them after that? You know, should they choose, you know, have chosen to contact you. So join us on the next episode. It's been, you know, this has been another great one and we'll see you later.